0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of April 2020 and this is episode 156. On today's podcast, I speak to Dr Adam Prime, lecturer in politics and contemporary history at the University of Salford, about his research into the Indian Army during the Great War. I spoke to Adam from his office in Manchester. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: So I am an associate lecturer at the University of Salford and I refer to myself as a historian of the Indian army in general, although my main focus is probably 1858 through till the end of the Second World War. I embarked on the same degree that I now teach on contemporary military and international history, and in my first year I answered a, an essay question that simply said, why did Singapore fall in 1942? And the Malaya campaign and the fall of Singapore had a huge Indian uh, contingent, and that sparked the Indian aspect of my current research. The First World War I came to a little bit later on in my third year at university. Not really had that much exposure to the First World War and I was certainly more of a Second World War enthusiast at that point. But a module simply entitled The First World War persuaded me that actually of the two total wars of the 20th century I found the First World War far more interesting. And then I began to combine this interest in the Indian Army along with an interest. So then I came to Deciding on a phd topic i had to hone this down and i landed on the officer corps as uh, my way into the subject and i've since then taken research back to the edwardian and victorian eras as well and unfortunately for the second world war it's actually fallen off the end of my research now for the time being at least but i might return to the fall of singapore some point in the future
0: We're going to talk about the Indian Army during the Great War today. Can you start by giving us a bit of background on the Indian Army, its purpose, history and size before 1914?
1: Okay, while trying not to get too carried away with this question, um, the Indian Army was essentially for internal security and the defence of India's borders. It came into being under the East India Company, which needed troops to guard its trading posts and factories and later to help as it expanded its territory the I.C. was not without rivals, though, and um, their rival French company was actually the first to begin to recruit uh, native soldiers. As during the um, War of Austrian Succession, the Royal Navy prevented the French from getting recruits to the subcontinent. These local recruits that the French began to work with soon mastered European drill and were put into the field. So the EIC naturally followed suit. It was during the Seven Years' War and famously the Battle of Plassey in 1757 that the French rival company was um, defeated, leaving the EIC as masters of the subcontinent and to turn their focus on expanding. This continued until 1857, when a military mutiny broke out in northern India in the presidency of Bengal. India was divided into three presidencies, each with their own army, Bengal in the north, Madras in the south, and Bombay in the west. The mutiny developed into a rebellion but lacked central leadership and was ultimately quashed in 1858, and it never spread any further than Bengal. But this was a rude awakening for the British, and it saw the end of the East India Company as the British Crown took over control of the subcontinent, with Victoria becoming the uh, Empress of India. From 1858 onwards, the Indian Army focused largely on defending the northwest frontier, or modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan, against an invasion through Afghanistan by the Russians during the Great Game. The 1857 Rebellion meant that the... But it was actually thanks to the 1857 Rebellion that the Indian Army went to war in 1914 in a much better shape than it may otherwise have done. Uh, The Indian military began to embark on reforms reforms were made to the officer corps as well as to the infantry in terms of what they were equipped with how they were dressed the officers began to be tested far more stringently thus it's a far more modern professional army that goes to war in 1914 than may otherwise have done and some of the most famous british soldiers of this time were involved in that Uh, lord roberts for instance was commander-in-chief first of madras army and then the whole of india And also we get in 1902, Kitchener becomes commander-in-chief of the Indian Army. And he is someone who really begins to modernise and change the Indian Army for the better. And with that culminates in 1914 with a rather professional, well-organised, modern fighting force, in my opinion anyway. And that's what goes to war. What size
0: was it in 1914? In
1: 1914, it was 240,000 men, along with somewhere between... Seventeen, eighty thousand British troops also on the subcontinent.
0: And were those British troops part of the Indian Army?
1: No, these are British Army soldiers who come under the authority of in, uh, the Indian Army during their time on the subcontinent.
0: So the Indian Army caters and commands um, indigenous or units drawn from indigenous peoples within the subcontinent?
1: Yes, it does. Um, and of course, when we say India at this point, we do mean uh, modern day countries of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and the Indian Army also included the Gurkhas of Nepal.
0: With reference to the Gurkhas, what was the ethnic makeup of the Indian Army's rank and file and, and secondly, its officer corps in 1914?
1: That is a very complex question, and I'll start at the very top with the officer corps. The officer corps was white, British or European, and very much a closed shop. It was reserved for middle-class British men public school educated, and most of who had gone through Sandhurst. Um, The majority of these came from families with either a heavy military background or connections to India, and in um, many cases both. For example, Vincent Ormsby, who um, went on to command the 127th Infantry Brigade during the Great War, uh, who was an Indian Army officer before the war broke out uh, and was killed in action in 1917. He followed his father into the military and his grandfather into the indian army his mother and father had actually met whilst vincent's father was aide-de-camp to his grandfather so you can see there how um, deeply woven into the dna of a lot of these men both india and military service would have been uh, the next level down is the indian officers or viceroy commissioned officers vcos and um, these Haven't got a British equivalent, but uh, probably closest to a sergeant major. And these are a conduit between officers and their men. There's uh, one very good example of what a good VCO would do. It comes from the Great War, in fact. Um, It's a trivial issue, but in 1917, the 27th Punjabis, based in Mesopotamia, refused to be inoculated against cholera. Reason being, there was a rumour going round that the inoculation rendered a man impotent. So the VCO VCO went round and located the man who'd started the rumour. He persuaded this man to be the first to take the injection, and thus the rest of the regiment followed suit. As I say, this is a trivial issue, but this is the sort of thing that VCOs were expected to do, both in the 19th century and during the First World War. When there is unrest, and um, there are a number of peaceful mutinies that break out in the 19th century, as well as, more famously, the 1950 mutiny at Singapore. When these break out, it's because the VCOs, in most cases, haven't been doing this role. They've been either become uninterested for some reason, or in some cases, they themselves are dissatisfied with service, and thus stop passing on any complaints or issues to their officers. Below the VCOs were the NCOs, and um, these have very much the same role as they would within the British Army. And then below them come the private soldiers, known as sepoys, which uh, derives from the Persian for infantrymen, or soars, who are the cavalrymen, although you probably see sepoy used as a blanket term for Indian private soldiers. In terms of makeup, the rank and file of the Indian Army was made up of various castes and creeds, but these were never mixed. All religion and caste sensibilities were met by their officers, such as religious ceremonies, dietary needs, and clothing, in particular headwear. But this obviously became more difficult during the war, and there were certain concessions that had to be made on both sides. For instance, Hindu for Hindu troops, Hindu holy men were unable to cross the sea, the Kalapani. To do so would be to lose status. So to remedy this, and not to be seen favouring another religious group the indian army banned all holy men from traveling abroad but this didn't stop troops in in any way and um, they muddled through it was made sure that religious texts were um, delivered to all fronts and oftentimes a senior vco would fulfill the role of the holy man another good example of this is comes from a chap called granville penfather evans an indian army officer he was the officer commanding a troop ship on the way to gallipoli when he was approached by Hindu uh, Subedar, who said that his troops were uns- dissatisfied from u- uh, using the galley after the Muslim troops. And could it be the other way around? Now, in India, it wouldn't have been a problem because they'd have had a kitchen each. And indeed, when Brighton Pavilion is used as an Indian hospital, there's no less than seven kitchens in the grounds so that troops can each prepare their own meals and there's no cross-contamination. Of course that's not possible on a troop ship and Evans had to be quite firm and state that if he changed the order the meals were prepared the Muslim troops would in turn complain. This was accepted begrudgingly by the Subedar but it it shows how during the war some of these religious and caste issues had to be set aside.
0: In terms of the officer class was um, service in the Indian army seen as the as by the, the the average Victorian gentleman, as lower socially than service in the British army. I'm just thinking about Lord Roberts, who, who went out there and served um, as a cavalryman and obviously became field marshal during the First World War. But it, he went out partly because of the, the... I think they were paid better and he didn't need a private income to be an officer. Was there a lot of truth in that?
1: Uh, absolutely. Indian service was very unpopular at the beginning of the 19th century and continued to be until the Cardwell reforms stopped men transferring to regiments not earmarked for India. The pay was better, and thus it appealed to men of lesser means. A good example of this would be Claude Auchinleck, obviously famous for the Second World War. He was the son of a deceased artillery officer. He got a grant for ex-officer's sons to go to Sandhurst, but he... Hadn't got the private income, his mother couldn't afford to provide the money for him to enter the cavalry or even a fashionable infantry unit. And he hadn't got the maths and science skills to enter the artillery or the engineers. And thus his best bet was to opt for the Indian Army. And because of this and because there's quite a few men in this boat um, with a lower living cost and higher wages attributed to the Indian Army and service in India, that actually became quite competitive Uh, And there had to be caps on the number of Sandhurst cadets that were opting for the Indian Army. So much so that I think Orkinlek, there was 45 places available in his cohort and he got the 45th place available.
0: And how did the Edwardian and Victorian racial views on empire and ethnic groups shape the way the Indian Army was organised and recruited?
1: The simple answer is in in a huge way. There's something from the Victorian era called the martial race theory, and this dominated the Indian army. The idea that some of the peoples of India had a fighting pedigree, whilst others were far more unfit for military service. Ethnic groups were marginalised uh, en masse. For example, the, the Bengalis are famous fighters. The Bengal Lancers, for instance, are a well-known group within the Indian army. Yet from 1897 onwards, after a poor showing in the Tira campaign, Bengalis begin to not be recruited. And it's, this shows that martial race there was ingrained, but also it was fluid and it could change. Almost regiments became fashionable and passed out of fashion. Groups from Madras in southern India were seen as non-martial, simply for the fact there wasn't as much um, action to be seen in southern India. So these were seen as soft and undesirable to, to officer. Whereas... The Indian army, for the most part, was drawn from quite a small section of the population, namely the Gurkhas, who we've mentioned, Sikhs from the Punjab, and Muslims um, from the northwest frontier regions. Officers sought postings with these regiments, because, and as well as looking, sorry, for um, postings in northern India where they'd see action, of course, um, we've mentioned Lord Robert. Robert's steeped in this martial race theory. He... He joined the Indian Army before the rebellion. When the artillery all moved over to the Royal Artillery, he moved over, but he remained in India. And then, as I said, he went on to be commander-in-chief of First Madras and then the Indian Army as a whole. And he was steeped in this. He believed it to his very core that certain groups were far more martial. And he promoted their the use. And he made sure that some of his favourites, he was, he was very famous for... Um, patronage was Robert's he made sure the sons of his friends etc all got postings to these martial regiments he made sure they all saw action with the Sikhs and with the Gurkhas and it's interesting when Kitchener comes in one of the few things he doesn't tackle is the martial race theory because it's so ingrained in the Indian system yet actually during the first world war manpower demands meant that martial race theory had to be done away with the indian army couldn't meet the manpower needs of the great war solely from such a small percentage of the population and so bengali troops for instance begin to be recruited again due partly for manpower issues but also to try and foster support for the war in the area an officer who who um, joined the indian army in 1915 from sandhurst basil was attached rather begrudgingly to the 49th bengalis in 1917 when it was created um, and these troops were sent to Mesopotamia for training. Um, but the whole, all of the officers for the regiment were rather unhappy. They got such a low opinion of these men because they were seen as non-martial. Amy's right home to say, well, actually, this hampered the training. This hampered any chance these men had got of becoming good soldiers because the officers weren't interested in training them. And there's a, there was a phrase from the commanding officer of the 49th, a man called Boomer Barrett, where he referred to these troops as congenital maniacs and paralytic idiots. And this was a phrase that began to be uttered in officers' messes up and down India. There's no evidence for this from Barrett, but it's an example of how badly officers viewed these troops and how Desperately, they were to move on to a formal martial regiment.
0: And did these ideas of of martial races actually persist through the war?
1: Yes, because they, although the martial race is obviously diluted during the war, after the Great War, it's returned to. And a lot of these non-martial regiments that are recruited disbanded and were returned to the Gurkhas, the Sikhs, men of the northwest frontier, being the main sources of recruitment once more.
0: During the war, how did the Indian Army recruit uh, men to its ranks, and what size did it reach by 1918?
1: The Indian Army in 1914 was 240,000 men. There was an average intake during the war of 200,000 uh, troops per year um, in 1917 and 18 there was targets of 500,000 men to recruit ultimately 1.5 million men served in the Indian army during the war the war ends with about 900,000 belonging to the Indian army pre-war the troops are obviously professional and they're drawn largely from farming communities pay wasn't massive but what it was it was a supplement to the farming income that these families relied upon and long service was incentivized with grants of land to again continue this farming during the war however although there wasn't conscription in india like the what became in britain and all recruitment was in theory at least by volunteering there was some coercion almost press gang like in some areas, particularly in 1918, as resistance to the war grew. um, Malaria in some areas had taken hold, uh, affecting rural communities, and therefore they were less willing to send their young men off to fight in the war and thus not be available for farming needs. There were recruitment initiatives during the war, though. For instance, in 1917, Mahatma Gandhi who'd returned to India, having been in Britain and South Africa, supported recruitment, visited villages with a message of, it's our duty to help. And there was recruitment films which showed Indian troops enjoying life in the army, showing the food they got, the sports they played, and just generally having a rather good time at the front. Also around recruitment, there's the case, the, the issue of officers. Obviously, as with the BEF, officer casualties are rather high. There existed before the war, the Indian Army Reserve of Officers. But this numbered only 40 men in 1914. So there had to be officers found from somewhere. When, in 1921, the Indian Army begins to reduce and wind down from the First World War, there's a surplus of 4,200 officers, which shows... Um, the not the amount of recruitment that was undertaken during the war. And these were largely drawn from men already working in India, men who belonged to the Indian Civil Service or the Forestry Commission, for instance, men who had the linguistic skills to work with Indian troops and just then for needed the military knowledge. And alternatively, British sergeants who had been based in India were also promoted to Indian Army officers because they had some grasp of the language and knowledge of the military skill involved. Too.
0: So what was the motivation for many of these men to join the Indian Army?
1: Well, uh, as I mentioned, there's regular pay. Um, some troops referred to joining the Indian Army as an alternative to hunger. But aside from that, there's an idea of family honour known as Izzat, and it was maintaining a family tradition. The regiment was also almost home from home for some men. During uh, times on garrison, for instance, and even on campaign, When troops partook in Jim Corners, there would be races and competitions for the sons of sepoys as well. The idea being that these would then join the same regiment when they became old enough. Fathers, sons, grandfathers, cousins, uncles, they all served. In the same regiment, and there was a, an element of pride in it, as well as the idea of gaining extra pay and allowances, and of course, for good service, grants of land.
0: So, what was the role of the Indian Army in the Great War?
1: But the simple answer is
0: it played a role in
1: all major theatres of the war, but it was initially only intended for garrison duty. Uh, the Indian Expeditionary Force A, which is the expeditionary force that Serves in France and Flanders was originally earmarked solely for the garrisoning of Egypt to free up British troops to then go and fight on the Western Front. But it's quickly decided that actually to leave Indian troops behind and use them only for garrison duty would be um, a bit of a PR disaster back in India. And so, Indian Expeditionary Force A is thus dispatched to Marseille. And I think there's an element here of an influence from Kitchener. As I said, Kitchener was a great reformer when it came to the Indian army. And I think he knows that these troops are well-trained, well-equipped, and therefore should be sent on to the front rather than languishing elsewhere. Away from the Western Front, there's heavy Indian involvement in Mesopotamia, which you would expect, as that campaign is run not from Whitehall, but from uh, India itself. And it's obviously an area that Indian troops can be easily sent to for reinforcements. Um, And that's another reason why the Indian Expedition Force, saying the infantry of that, the Indian Corps, they are taken away from the Western Front on Boxing Day 1915 and sent to Mesopotamia. I believe one of the reasons for that is because it's so much more easier to send reinforcements and supplies to Mesopotamia than it is to the Western Front. Later on in the war... There's a huge Indian element to Allenby's force that defeats the Ottomans. And before that, if I can hone in on one example, when the Ottoman army attacked the Suez Canal in 1915, in February 1915, in fact, the Suez Canal is defended solely by Indian troops. The only addition to that is one battery of Egyptian artillery. It is Indian 10th and 11th divisions, including, in fact, Claude Orkinlek in his first action, that defends the canal against the Ottoman attack which, as anyone who understands um, supply in this year, if the Ottomans could have taken the Suez Canal, even for a couple of days, maybe sank a few ships and, and blocked it, that would have seriously hampered Britain's capabilities on the Western front. There's also, all the garrison, obviously, um, places like Singapore, where the, the mutiny happened in 1915 is garrisoned solely by Indian troops, as is Hong Kong, and they're also in used in German East Africa, and as well in taking German possessions in China. So the role is they are at the forefront of this war. On the Western Front, for instance, they used at first, even they plugged quite an important gap in the line around Vichata, which otherwise could have been open to a German advance. But, um, if I might add a little here, being in areas of the world that the Indian army's never been before actually opened up Indian troops to new experiences, and this is a fascinating area of the First World War. For instance, there's examples of Indian soldiers visiting Madame Tussauds in London, and there's an excellent piece from the aforementioned Granville Penfather Evans, who, along with the Captain Barnes, had a detachment of 400 Sikh troops in Marseille, these two officers arranged for these troops to visit a local cinema. They met the owner, negotiated a price of one franc per troop, and they told the owner they wanted nothing, and I quote, nothing sexy. No dancing girls, wearing tights, etc. And they sit down, seek troops. have never These troops have never been to the cinema before. It starts with a wonderful display of troop ships, etc., as was asked for. But then do come the dancing girls, uh, the hero embracing his lover. And it's a wonderful passage from Evans where he says, me and Barnes may have enjoyed the picture were not for 400 gaping mouths behind us. And that's just one example of these Indian troops being exposed to European life and and experiencing a whole new uh, adventure, I suppose, for them.
0: So what was the military contribution of the Indian army to the British war effort during the Great War?
1: Uh, As I said, 1.5 million men served from a starting point of only 250,000. 13,000 awards for gallantry were received by the Indian Army, including uh, 11 Victoria Crosses. And I think one of the main contributions, or not contributions, but something worth highlighting maybe, is that the Indian Army, to achieve uh, or to aid British victory, accepted privation that they wouldn't have accepted in peacetime i've mentioned dietary requirements and religious needs before there's examples on the western front of hindu gurkhas eating corn beef which is against their religion but they did it because starvation and inability to contribute would have been the alternative and there's a lot of examples of this as, as the war goes on where men have to accept that actually in india we may have got exactly what we wanted but we we are professional soldiers, for the most part, who need to win a war. And that comes through quite strongly in the letters that the Indian soldiers write home.
0: How is the, how is the contribution of the Indian Army remembered today on the subcontinent and in Britain?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, I think in Britain we're very guilty of still using the term forgotten. Yet a simple Google search of Indian Army First World War, for instance throws up so many online and newspaper articles that this clearly isn't forgotten. Yes, it's probably less well known than the contribution of other Empire and Dominion forces, such as the Anzacs and the Canadians, but there is certainly an underlying knowledge that there is an Indian contribution to the First World War. It's been highlighted with some um, documentaries over the centenary as well. And of course, probably for us today, quite famously, with the inclusion of a Sikh soldier in Sam Mendes' film 1917, which caused some furore when a, shall not mention by name, but uh, a certain actor rejected the idea that such troops would be present. Uh, In India, it's a little bit different. Indian commemoration began with a visit from then-Defense Secretary Michael Fallon in 2014, but... If you look at the articles published in India, they're often celebrating Indian contribution, but they're always tinged with bitterness that self-rule was never granted in return for the Indian contribution to victory in the First World War.
0: And finally, Adam, where can people learn more about your research?
1: I am currently writing a book called The Indian Army Officer Corps, 1858-1921, to Lives and Careers in the Raj. And that is a book that looks not only at the officer corps from the purely military perspective, but as the title suggests, also looking at their experience outside of direct military action, such as the sport they played, uh, the social circles they, they ran in, etc. I do have a chapter in a book edited by Alan Jeffreys, called The Indian Army in the First World War New Perspectives. My chapter's on the defence of the Suez Canal, but um, listeners can find chapters in there on all, most of the fronts of the First World War, as well as the experience of POWs and various other aspects of Indian Army life. I would suggest that people maybe look at the work of George Morton Jack and Peter Stanley as well, who've written some excellent books, but also point listeners in the direction of a couple of primary sources the first one being a published source and um, david and edited indian voices of the great war soldiers letters 1914 18 indian troops were great letter writers particularly on the western front but these were heavily censored what Amissi's done is gone through the censors reports and therefore put together this book full of letters home written by indian soldiers and it's a fascinating read and on top of that, I'd encourage people to maybe use the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive. There's some excellent interviews on that um, from officers of the Indian Army of the, talking about their experience uh, with Indian troops in these various sort of far-off land Indian soldiers and the new experiences that they had.
0: Adam, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>
1: Thanks. <laughs>